Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Alex Kahana. Alex, if you want to just take a moment to quickly maybe lay out your background. I don't know how quickly I can do that, but <laughs> thank you so much for having me. My name is Alex Kahana, and I am a Chief Medical Officer and Market Lead for Europe, Middle East, and Africa in our company called Consensus Health, which is a spin-off of out of consensus and we are the largest blockchain and healthcare company in the world. I arrived to that position uh, through I would call a non-linear career in medicine. I have been uh, many years in a military background and you'll understand the relevance of that when I talk about distributed trust and the idea that we have to work in a team and none of us is as good as all of us. I had a full medical career in academia for over 25 years, building multiple pain centers in Israel, Japan, Switzerland, and the US. So it's safe to say that I am uh, familiar with uh, the healthcare industry, the global healthcare industry, not only as a uh, physician and patient advocate, but also from the business aspect of it and work in research and how to interact with the industry and federal and state agencies. I've always been, I would say, a systems thinker, so my approach is always in delivery, and I uh, came to the U.S. in 2007 to uh, revitalize, I would say, the first pain center in the world that was built back in the 50s. I uh, got introduced into the whole opioid epidemic, and that introduced me to the whole, I would say, uh, legislative and regulatory landscape in the U.S., became a subject matter expert for the DOD and the VA. Early on, I, at that time, got integrated into the whole, I would say, aspect of patient-reported outcome and technological integration in the clinical workflow. I moved to New York about in 2014 and immediately very lucky to be a theme developer for ARC Investment Management since. Learned from them and got exposed and bit by the uh, blockchain bug and trying to understand among all the different disruptive technologies what really distributed ledger technology has to offer. Started to write about it, became a voice in it and not only co-editing the textbook of healthcare and blockchain, but also working on a global landscape at the UN and the Economic Council for Electronic Business and Transmissions as an expert in blockchain and healthcare, and as I mentioned, my position at Consensus Health. Perfect. Yeah, well, that you're definitely right. That's quite a few things, and I, I want to try to go through them, you know, systematically. But I, I think the first thing that I 
I want to just quickly touch on following everything that you just laid out is thinking about your experience with, you know, roughly speaking, let's call it translational sort of scientific discovery and thinking about, you know, the cadence with which things can be developed in the private sector and then are layered into a kind of a governmental framework. I know there's a lot of focus being given to that collaboration, especially in the United States, kind of the handshake between private sector companies that are developing, you know, whether it's new diagnostics or therapies or things like that. But taking a step back from your experience and maybe different government systems, have you noticed anything different or interesting or surprising between the way that companies are working with the government to be able to get these solutions out, you know, more quickly or more effectively? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a great question. And as a guy from the military, there's nothing like a a good battlefield to make you move gingerly. I think that what COVID-19 has caused, besides, of course, working virtually and not enjoying the uh, restaurant scene in New York City, is really a lot of things that we've been talking about within the uh, blockchain or the DLT, the distributed ledger technology space connection with, I would say, the public sphere has now become urgent and relevant and hence poised to engage with the private sphere. So there is really an explosion of public-private partnerships. And I think that the major realization that is happening is the interdependence between the two. So simply stated is that my behavior impacts everyone in the world and someone in a faraway place by their behavior can impact our well-being. And I think that beyond that being a humbling experience and maybe a eye-opening experience, it also creates opportunities to do business in a different way. And I think that this public-private partnership that has evolved, especially in the last month, has really brought people to uh, realize that there are new ways in doing things that involve distributed networks that can ensure trust, transparency, distribution of uh, gain and risk in a way Mm -hmm. that we can move forward, going back to that same dictum that I've said from the military, that none of us is as good as all of us. Right. And I know I definitely do want to leave some time, maybe a little bit later, to get into the finer details of blockchain generally as it relates to the healthcare sector. But just quickly, you know, a lot of people are thinking about, you know, keeping track and monitoring the health of different supply chains, whether domestic or overseas. And if I'm not wrong, that's, you know, one material advantage that DLT has in terms of, you know, being able to track and keep those things visible and and editable as we move along. So Maybe just for the people that aren't necessarily familiar with the scope of blockchain technology. Of course, I know we have our probably some experts <laughs> that are going to be listening to this. But for those of us who are not, could you maybe just kind of provide a general overview of what that is and how it can be amenable to maybe the industrial sector as some of these supply chains begin to come back online? And then maybe a little bit later, we'll do a deeper dive specifically into how it's relevant to uh, the healthcare space. Sure, sure. I think that the easiest way to, and the way I explain it, is that blockchain is a technology or a software solution that solves the problem of fake. You know, we're all worried about fake things. So in the context of supply chain is, you know, I don't want fake medication. I don't want fake vaccines. In the context of news, I want to make sure that what I hear and the recommendations that I learn from are correct. 
in the perspective of law. I want to make sure that my contracts are audited, traceable. So I think that we live now in an era where we realize that our data is not safe. It's not clean in that sense, and it's not yours. It's not sovereign. So what DLT does by the virtue of combining cryptographic signatures in a network of individuals that are organizations that are interrelated, it creates almost like an incentive or a behavioral economic to make sure that this data transforms into something that is safe, that is clean, or in that sense, trusted, and that is actually yours. And that yours could be personal, it could be mine as an individual, but it could be mine as a company, as an organization, as a country. And I think that's what we're feeling right now. And as we work remotely, I'm sure that you also feel this cognitive overload that we're going. We're just so bombarded with so many things that if we're able to create an environment where we can be sure that our data is safe and trusted and ours, then this is really what the DOT aims to solve. I think that's super topical right now. I think I just saw an article about how some remote working tools are having a lot of privacy concerns. So super topical for right now. And so I guess I would want to know how blockchain is being utilized to help some of those privacy concerns for companies where we're utilizing a lot of remote tools for working and, and actually for socializing right now. I'd also be curious to know if it's being implemented at all sort of in the healthcare system more broadly than just the supply chain, but in patient records, if you have a COVID patient who is at a hospital, is there any kind of blockchain technology that people are utilizing to get those records for that patient from another hospital securely through blockchain? And then maybe specifically for coronavirus, but also beyond, is blockchain being implemented in those type of scenarios? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a very good observation. And I would say that everything that we're doing now is actually better preparing us not only to deal better with COVID, and I know that we're all in this and we're waiting for the big hump these next months to come, but it also will better prepare us in the post-pandemic world. And I would say that there's this concept of what I would call the pandemic triangle, where we are sold this narrative that in order to be safe, we have to give up our privacy and our economy. It's as if these three things cannot live together. And we think at Consensus Health that that narrative is false, that we can create a operational environment that includes a combination of disruptive technologies, which by the way, ARC Invest is exactly in your portfolio, that involves not only DLT, blockchain, but also privacy in-depth technologies such as zero-knowledge proof and homomorphic encryption and trusted and encrypted environments, all types of solutions that make sure that our data is, I would say, secure, and also a machine learning approach, which is called federated learning which is really interesting because instead of, you know, the way we think that uh, data has to feed the algorithm and so it kind of worries everybody regarding the sharing of data, especially if it's private, especially if it's a proprietary, this approach actually speaks where we can perform analytics on data that actually stays at its source and there's no need to copy it and transmit it to different data links. 
And so, again, the combination of not just blockchain, we say blockchain and, you know, what does blockchain do? Blockchain and genomics, blockchain and IoT, blockchain and machine learning. And so this combination of a distributed network that is governed by contracts or coded contracts that we call smart contracts that are transparent in the terms of multi-stakeholder licensing and agreements of how we behave in that distributed network combined with these privacy in-depth technologies that in sense kind of almost says that I don't need to know about something to be able to show that I know about it. And I know that it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but it is extremely necessary in medicine and in healthcare and in life science that we will be able to analyze information without losing our ability to know who has that information without exposing them to privacy. And the third part is this federated analytics or federated learning first and then the analytics where we work together to create this decentralized artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think one, from all that you just said, I think one of the first kind of natural areas where I think there's some pretty interesting convergence, and I'm not sure if this is on your radar or maybe it's not being practically utilized yet, but when you kind of outline the overlap between genomics, healthcare, and you know, these sort of blockchain architectures, one of the first things I'm thinking about, which a lot of others are focused on, is contact tracing, which is the idea that you know once someone has been known to have come in contact with a person infected with COVID-19 or a person is infected themselves, you can kind of reverse engineer the activities that got them to that point and look at where they may have kind of interact with others in a network. So you can kind of almost reverse predict, you know, where this infection kind of pool came from and where others are most likely to be getting it or passing it on to others. And I could think that would be a pretty natural integration with electronic medical records or, you know, maybe in a research context when researchers are finding different strains or different kind of branches off of the original COVID-19 strain, if those pop up, then you could use that to kind of discover, you know, what variations are beginning to ebb and flow throughout a population. I'm not sure if that's ever been done before or practically implemented, but I imagine like this type of instance is really going to force people to kind of think differently with kind of the system approach to thinking about how to contact trace and how to reverse engineer those sorts of issues. Correct. And I think that part of that forced reflection, if you wish, is on two levels. One is a technological level, understanding that de-identification in centralized data pools is actually not anonymity. It's pseudonymity because exactly what you said, it can be retrograded. So if you say to someone, oh, we have this podcast with this amazing doctor who does blockchain and medicine and finance, well, everybody will say, wait a second, is he Israeli? Yeah, okay, so that's probably Dr. Kahana. So that's not really the fact that you didn't identify me on the website, a real anonymity. So that's the impetus in that pandemic triangle, the public safety, we don't have to give up our privacy in order to maintain that, hence the impetus to create all these privacy-preserving technologies. And the reason is, of course, is that when this is over, when this has waned until the next wave, and maybe this is the new normal, we want to be very careful to not create an operating environment of biometric uh, surveillance. 
there have been things out there that have been developed that have been mostly used for counterintelligence purposes, anywhere from the combination of biometric plus face ID plus remote biometric sensing. And if you combine that with geolocation and social media activity and apply on it machine learning that can understand habits, you can actually know about someone more than that person knows about themselves. So I think that the point that I'm trying to make is that we don't have to agree to that narrative that in order for us to find new treatments in the world, I have to give away my genomic data for free. Or that in order to halt COVID, I have to give my geolocation just because. Or that necessarily we have to stop the economy and be under complete lockdown. These are very sledgehammer measures that are done because we are still using digital tools that belong to the old world that are not, I would say, that are actually security vulnerable, consensus or censorship vulnerable, and collusion vulnerable. And what blockchain together with these privacy-preserving technologies and federated learning basically turns all this data that is out there into something that is uh, secure or attack resistant, that is censorship resistant, so that we know that it's trusted what we're saying, and it's also collusion resistant, that we don't have a couple of people saying, well, you know, maybe we won't tell someone that someone is sick in the building because we don't want them to panic. And I think that what we're feeling now with this pandemic that we haven't felt with the previous ones is this urge, and part of it is also the maturity of the technologies to create that new way of living and by proxy, new ways of doing business. Yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, I know in the UK, the government is trying to release contact tracking app, which would detect if you were nearby someone who had the coronavirus, and it would be unanimous, but it would uh, alert you. (laughs) So definitely what you're saying is, I think, more and more of what we're going to see as a society. I think you have so many really interesting perspectives, you know, the intersection of kind of medicine, finance, tech, you have a really unique skill set. So I think it'd be interesting to kind of pivot a little bit here to talk about your medical background. So You're an anesthesiologist, and I think what's interesting is that anesthesiologists now are in high demand and short supply, so we're looking to other specialties and doctors working in different fields to actually man the ICUs and operate ventilators. So what's kind of your biggest concern with that, and is there any way to mitigate some of those risks? I would say, first of all, that, you know, we are trained as doctors. And doctors learn CPR, and doctors learn advanced CPR, and we learn how to maintain life. So in that sense, I am less concerned with the capabilities of my colleagues to actually do procedures that I've done, to do, for example, intubations and connect patients to ventilators. That's really not what I think is the main concern that comes up to mind. There are, of course, 
medical liabilities that come with it. I know that New York State, New York City granted some type of, I would say, legal protection during this uh, under gross negligence. But we know that after this wave, there is going to be a whole host of liabilities and lawsuits that will follow since we still see the ones that are from 9-11. So there are some, I would say, medical, legal, as well as social aspects of giving people or giving physicians or physician extenders or students uh, tasks that are out their scope of practice. I think that what is really worrisome, and maybe it's going under the radar and people aren't talking about this a lot, and it just simply helps because I'm very much connected. Both my spouse is a professor in anesthesiology and she's in the front line, and of course all the physicians that I have contact with. The sense almost of isolation that they feel, it's not just a combination of being, that it's already hard when you have a mass casualty event very traumatic and someone who has been in the military and seen battlefield and had a, over 16 years a career of readiness and preparedness if you add on top of that of the trauma of seeing an influx of seriously ill people if you combine that with what we hear now not only inadequate personal protection equipment but also in certain establishments where physicians are prohibited to share their experiences because it, it makes the institute look bad. Or that as they're doing things, they get emails saying that, well, your bonus is cut, or we're gonna cut in your salary, or you're not going to get paid. I think that those are aspects that are just, that weigh very hard on the psyche of physicians who are already suffering from what we know is a burnout syndrome. And I worry for this post-pandemic world of what healthcare professionals and physicians in particular are going to do. I think that, you know, here again, blockchain can play a very interesting role, both in terms of creating, I would say, a social organization where doctors can speak freely and securely anonymity without fear of retaliation or stigma, and can also be incentivized to participate in this, if you want, digitized platform and vote using different types of tokens. We call that type of voting quadratic voting, which basically is, if you wish, it's almost like a reputation point. The more you are active and the more you are a better citizen in that community, then the more robust connectivity is created in that physician environment. So one aspect where blockchain can help is what we call DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, that where we have this sharing environment that, again, the data is, or the information that is passed is secure, private, and sovereign. And the second thing is really to create both monetary and not monetary tokens that represent I would say, uh, reward or recognition on their behavior. So again, in general, when people think about blockchain and healthcare, they say, and you alluded to that earlier, it could be really good to trace on the supply chain. It could be really good to manage clinical trials with it. It could be perhaps helpful with the validation or authentication of credentialing, definitely help in everything that pertains to a digital identification and electronic health records. But I think that most importantly, what I want your audience to leave from this conversation is that 
blockchain is not a technology. Blockchain is a mindset. It's a mentality where we realize that we have to work together, hence the name consensus, that we have to decide between us what are the rules that we agree on to engage with each other and that there is a fair, ethical, and sustainable behavioral economics behind it so that that ecosystem not only can be resilient, but can also be sustainable. Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point about how difficult this is for the frontliners and how much they're struggling. And a lot of focus is on the patient and their families, but we definitely can't forget the frontliners who are, you know, our best defense right now. And, you know, a lot of companies are doing things to try and help out. I think Crocs is giving away free shoes. Local restaurants are giving discounts. I think you're involved with an organization that is also trying to provide some relief called Fino. Failure is not an option. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that is a resource in the fight against COVID-19 and maybe beyond COVID-19? Sure, sure. So FINO basically is a coalition of multiple partners, both in the industry and in academia, where really we felt that failure is not an option and that we have to create this new operational environment that is prepared to deal not only with COVID-19, but also the post-pandemic world. We recognize that actually all cure to all diseases is data. Data is the medicine. And without having trusted data that can be transmitted in what we call a trustless way, in other words, that there's no need to have a third party that can validate that what I'm transmitting is okay, that I am sure that the information that I am providing you, you know that Alex is Alex and what he's saying is true. We understand that we have to create a multi-stakeholder, multi-faceted operational environment that will connect on the base all the legacy systems that are currently in hospitals and practices and part of our digital healthcare infrastructure. And on top of it, all the great solutions that all the companies are coming up with, all these applications, and it doesn't matter if it's a decentralized application or just an application, but the point being that between the bottom and the top, there has to be a creation of rails or of an operational environment that can create the security, the privacy, and the economic viability of whatever information transaction is going to happen. And so there needs to be a distinction mm -hmm. between data, which is raw data of everything, versus metadata or source data that speaks to a data that is scrubbed from private protected information. And then, of course, what really interests people is the derived data or the actionable information. Because as a patient, you know, I just want to know, should I wear a mask or shouldn't I wear a mask? I turn on one channel, they say yes. I turn on another channel, they say absolutely not. What do I do? And so we understand that good decisions being taken by doctors that can recommend us what to do, or by researchers that can find the best answers to these questions, or by policymakers that depend on that science and clinical wisdom cannot happen with an operational environment that FINO is trying to create. 
And so we're having actually a hackathon on April 14th, and we've invited the really the Web3 developer world to come in and contribute their crowd intelligence into this. And we're also looking forward to hear from your audience, folks that are interested in contributing this creation of the new business model that will be created after this, because there's really no fundamental difference from a technological perspective or from a technological stack perspective between an acute pandemic of a communicable disease to a chronic illness that is non-communicable. There's really no fundamental difference. It's just the cadence is different. You just got to do things quicker. You got to, you know, uh, give ventilators quick or you got to give masks quick. But it doesn't change the fact that if you do diabetes, you also have to have all the devices and you also have to have the insulin and you also have to have the discovery piping. So in that sense, we're not just building something that will be useful for the next six months or year. We're actually redesigning healthcare. And I would finish by saying that when people ask me, what is the opposite of health? Then, and it's not a trick question. So I'll ask you, what is the opposite of health? The opposite of health is? Death, probably. Death, death, disease, illness. That's what I get, you know, 99.999% of the time. But I would argue for a second that that's incorrect. That because we think that the opposite of health is illness, we have created an illness management system. We have not created a healthcare system. So I would argue to you and to the audience that the opposite of health is isolation. That through disease and illness, we become isolated. And as we get sicker and sicker, our world becomes smaller and smaller until we become so alone that we decide to, I don't know, overdose. And this happens 150 times a day. So we don't talk about it, but now because we're all in the COVID pandemic, but once this is over, we will return to these awful deaths of despair that are going on right now in our country. And so the way I explain it to my 14 year old is that in essence, if the opposite of health is isolation, the journey back to health is community. It is connectivity, and it can be connection to your data, but also connection to friends, family, social media, uh, congregation, doesn't matter. And so if you take the I out of illness and you replace it with we, what do you get? Get wellness. Wellness. And that's how I think about this. The power of blockchain is not a technology, but it's a mindset is that I alone may go fast, but only together we go far. And so we have to create an interdependent economy that is capable of developing financial inclusion and social capital, because the difference between a commodity market that has finite resources, we are now in a data economy, which is infinite. We have to leave that mindset of impoverishment and move into a, a mindset of affluence and inclusion. And that is what's going to create the robustness and anti-fragility to the market. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, one follow-up that I have on that is, and you know, I'm sensitive to the fact that the 
earlier SARS and MERS epidemics were you know, more than a decade ago. And we've experienced a lot, both in terms of technological evolution and data intensity and the infrastructure that we have to receive that data and process it and make it actionable. But I guess maybe these are two different questions. But my first thing that I just wanted to ask is, you know, obviously we went through those previous epidemics and didn't necessarily learn a whole lot. You know, we're in the same situation now. And so my first question is, you know, what other either technological or temperament changes do you think are going to make the response to COVID-19 any different than previous outbreaks? And the follow-up to that is, how do we know that we're being successful? Right, obviously there's a sea of information and finger pointing and things going on. And maybe as the dust settles and we begin to move throughout the rest of the year and and into 2021, what are the checkpoints that we should be looking for to know that we're actually iterating towards that kind of future version of, you know, uh, healthcare infrastructure as you've laid out? Like what are the actual concrete, you know, checkpoints that we're going to be measuring as we move along? So for your first question, I think that what is happening now with COVID is not essentially any different than what happened in previous pandemics, except that history rhymes. And why should this change our behavior is really a question of our ability to internalize the root causes of why this is happening, to understand that there's a connection between social determinants of health, environmental determinants of health, and health. That just as much as we understand in the investment world that there's a world that's ESG out there that we need to concentrate on environment and sustainability and governance, and I would add H, health, it is the same thing that in healthcare we're starting to see that the way that we are approaching this, and the model is antiquated, the model, the hospital model that we have is centuries old, is simply not adequate to deal with what we're doing right now. And I'll quote Atul Gawande in saying that what makes nowadays different than previous decades or centuries is that for the first time in our history, what we will decide is not going to be because of ignorance, but it's going to be because of ineptitude, is that despite the fact that we know what is the right thing to do, we chose to do the wrong thing. So that is very different than when we decided, uh, you know, when when George Washington had the runs and we decided to put leeches on him and, and let his blood, and we did it three times until eventually he died, there was no malice behind it. They really thought that that's the way to treat, you know, our beloved founding father. Now we don't have that. Now we know, and there's modeling, and we know what needs to be done, and we understand that we need to collaborate, and that we have now these technologies that allow us to collaborate securely, privately, and trustworthily, even with financial incentives and digital assets. So we're running out of excuses of not doing the right thing. And as for your second question, you know, what are the metrics of success? I think that they're divided into two. One are process metrics. And I actually think that they're quite secondary, even though that's what we always look at, morbidity and mortality and the different 
indicators of performance. I think that, you know, as a physician, I was always less interested in what lab tests and imaging and third-party stuff told me and always listened to the first person, to what does the patient say. And so I think that the analogy of that in the success is our ability to transform people that right now we are passive health service consumers. That's what we do. We consume health. We need expensive drugs. We need ventilators. We need masks. We need stuff. And of course, in a pandemic, we need it now, and that's it. But when we start to go into the life of chronic lifestyle diseases, what you want is to transform people from these passive consumers of health services to active producers of health and wealth. And so a successful transformation will be a world like the one that we're now trying to build in fragile and vulnerable communities in Africa who don't have the infrastructure, who are voiceless, who are bankless, who the only thing they have is internet and a phone is to transform them into health producers where by the virtue of behaving well, and it could be by boiling your water, cleaning you know, the road that you're on, all the way to eating the right type of foods, getting prenatal care, vaccinations when appropriate, and actually remunerate people for that good behavior. And so we don't need to talk about UBI. We don't need to talk about doling out checks to people. What we need is to create a token economy with digital assets that will provide and incentivize people to behave in a healthy way because they know that it's not in 30 years I'll live another 15 minutes because I ate blueberries. It's because I'm going to get 50 100 $200 from behaving well. And then it starts to become really interesting if you're into finance, because you can think of primary data markets, secondary data markets. You can think about direct and indirect monetary and non-monetary incentives. And that's where the behavioral economics comes in. So I think that, you know, we are really, COVID and this pandemic is forcing us to really think closely. It gives us a time to pause, to Marie Kondo ourselves. What do I really, 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 really need? What should we really, 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 really do? Do I need seven administrators for every doctor? Or maybe do I need seven doctors for every administrator? And start to really move forward and redesign ourselves, not so much in concentrating in, okay, how do I optimize processes, but more how do I get to that point that we, you, me, our audience, are actively engaged every day in creating health and wealth. I think that's a really good point that we need to focus on. So redesigning ourselves, you know, focusing on health. And so I think there's a lot of changes that are happening now because of COVID-19, a lot of innovations happening during this pandemic. And so I'd be curious to know some of your thoughts on how some of these innovations will potentially cause changes for the future. So one example is obviously telemedicine for clinical trials. A lot of clinical trials are currently being put on hold because having immunocompromised patients coming to the hospital right now is not really an ideal situation. 
Also, they're having some clinical trials are going to oral chemotherapy as opposed to IV infusion. So I'd be curious to know, do you think these things are kind of in the short term, just during the pandemic? Do you think they may be longer term? And then obviously some technology changes as well, like 3D printing of masks or ventilator parts. Do you think those are sort of short-term remedies or will they impact long-term changes? As you know, you eloquently mentioned about sort of the long-term view rather than the short-term view. Yeah, I think that everything that is happening now short-term will persist. Maybe not to the same degree, but there's no return to normal because normal is the reason why we got into this. So it makes no sense to return to that normal. And if I speak in biological terms, we always think we talk about homeostasis. You know, it's how do you create a homeostatic environment where, you know, if the sodium is a little up, how do we make it go down? How do we normalize and standardize values? But actually the world and the human body is not homeostatic, it's allostatic. In other words, whenever they're confronted with new stressors, there is a new reality. So I am the same Alex, but clearly I'm not the Alex of my teens, and I'm not the Alex when I was in the military, and I'm not the Alex when I was a young clinician. I am now in my mid-50s. I always like to say that I'm 35 with 20 years of experience. But the point being that we live in an allostatic world that is changing. And the change that we are going through, social distancing and what it forces us to do, anywhere from the remote monitoring and telemedicine that you're speaking, all the way to a cashless environment because we understand that these pieces of paper are antiquated ways of, you know, vectoring diseases. So we understand that virtualization is part of our life. So whether we're like gaming and we're into virtual or augmented or mixed reality, or whether we consume media in a more dynamic way, the way we interact has impacted the technologies that are needed to be created. So in order to have the 3D printing successful, in order to have these remote clinical trials or these immersive technologies or these fast-track genomics and telehealth and telemedicine and tele-everything because we're doing even this podcast using Zoom, is that it will require the change of the structure of the internet, hence the internet 3.0. And blockchain is web 3.0. That for those who are less familiar, the web 1.0 in the 90s was the democratization of knowledge. It was suddenly, you know, knowledge was there. I didn't have to go to the library or wait for my last edition of Encyclopedia Britannica to prove to my dad that I was right, the years of reign of Napoleon. Now I just Google it. And so it changed the concept of what's an expert. An expert is not someone who memorizes stuff. An expert is not someone who just knows things. An expert is someone who has the soft skills to combine information and to understand patterns and to connect the dots. And then in the 2000s, the Web 2.0 came. And that was with with broadband and with dynamic internet. And that changed the concept of influencers. That suddenly you didn't need to be a Nobel Prize winner or you didn't need to go through 30 years in academia in order to be an influencer. You could just be someone with a webcam and talk coherently to uh, the camera. And suddenly you have tons of followers. 
And what blockchain has created by the virtue, again, of allowing data to be safe and trusted and sovereign is the internet of value, that suddenly I can transfer valuable things. And that valuable things can be anywhere from digital money or programmable money, because it's not only digital, but it's money that I can define that you can use that money only to buy healthy food or only to use it for healthy reasons but also not only currency, but also data or information. And so every time when my friends of cryptocurrencies talk about their trading, I just, instead of hearing the word currency or dollar, I change it with the word data, information. And so that's the precipice that we're sitting on right now, that in this virtual, remote, distant world that we're stepping into, we need to make sure that the technologies that support it can make sure that the information that is transferred between us is accurate and safe and trusted and not vulnerable to censorship and manipulation and malicious activity. And this is what DLT and federated or decentralized AI brings to the table. Yeah, definitely. Those are all really great points. I think at this point, I want to leave it up to you. Is there anything that you want to cover or discuss further that we haven't maybe gotten a chance to do so yet? Well, I would just say one thing to the audience. I wrote recently a post on Medium, and everybody is invited to read medium.com. Alex Kahana, it's a short read. It's eight minutes. Obviously, it has links there that you can spend the whole day reading. But it's really the idea of, I would say, It's called the three good things that has come out of this pandemic. What are the three good things? And I tell the story of my recent visit to Kibera, which is a one million person urban slum. It's the largest urban slum in the world in the outskirts of Nairobi. And how they're really, they understand blockchain intuitively. They understand, I, I was invited to figure out how can we create a blockchainized, if you wish, healthcare system. But the idea basically is that what this has caused us, the three good things is one, we are becoming even more creative. So it's great. It's great what you guys are doing and what you guys are supporting and and your audience that is interested and investing in, in all these wonderful solutions. That's one thing that it anything from vaccinations and how to monitor and how to trace and track all the way to, for example, these guys that, you know, repurpose scuba diving gear in order to be, you know, masks for ventilation. So it just shows the infinity of the ingenuity of human mind. The second thing that is a good thing is that we can seriously pause for a second and really rethink our system. And I'll be very sad if after this, we will just go back to all these things that we've been doing that we've shown are valueless. And the third thing is that, again, we have now this unique opportunity of creating a global intelligence without sacrificing privacy. And that's the opportunity that we have here. And that if anybody says to you that you have to give me everything, including your secret code to your bank account in order to remain disease-free, That is a false narrative. And all these questions that seem simple that people are asking me, oh, you know, how long will this take? How many masks do we need? How many ventilators? When is the vaccine going to be ready? 
they look like these questions are simple, but actually these are too hard to answer. They're too hard to answer with our current system. Why? Because they're too big. They require too much information to answer accurately. They are too expensive because all the semantics of these data need to be harmonized and standardized. And they're too sensitive because they include protected personal identifiable information. So we believe that the only way, and this is hence again the Fino project, that we believe that we can create a new way to interact amongst ourselves and to do business through this operational environment that involves distributed networks that are using cryptographic secure information that is analyzed through a federated learning, which means everybody is contributing in this crowd intelligence with business incentives that are transparent and ethical and sustainable. I think that's a really great way to end, just talking about the positivity you know, innovation gaining traction during these really tough times. I know over here right now on the East Coast, it's 7 p.m. And every night at 7 p.m., everyone gets on their balconies and claps to thank the frontline workers. So um, the positive uh, outcry of support for frontline workers, I think, has also been a really nice positive that we've seen, which is certainly deserved. So we just want to thank you, Alex, so much for your time and your insights. And, you know, if there's anything else you want to just quickly close on, we'd be happy to. But otherwise, this has been a real pleasure for us. And we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you so much. Yep. Thanks a lot, Alex. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.